You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still in the studio, but we're back in Samuel. We kind of took a little detour through uh, from the story, or part of the story was like a detour, a detour through <laughs> Psalms. I'm not really sure exactly how to say that. Excursus. <laughs> but, you know, we... It, it tied in. It tied in, yeah. It's a, a psalm about the event that we were reading about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was... Pretty interesting. I hope everyone else did too. But we got another one coming up, so, so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, but for this one, we're back in First Samuel chapter twenty-two is where we're starting. Yeah, right? twenty-two. And so, uh, in case you lost place where we were, um, David has gone to Nov. He's gotten the showbread. He's gone to Gath. He's escaped there by acting like a madman, and now he is gone to hide in the cave of Adullah. And Adulon um, is a place in the territory of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. Uh, that's in Joshua 15.35. And it means closed in place. Uh, this mountain range has a lot of uh, caves. It's got a lot of little deep crags and, and nooks and crannies for, for things to be hidden in. And, you know, it's a great place for somebody on the run to, to find some cover. And living in Oklahoma, I do feel like Bible stories and Saturday morning cartoons gave me an unrealistic expectation for how often I would actually need to hide in a cave. <laughs> um, I expected a little bit more, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to. This I'm is not true. complaining. Well, the, the caves in Oklahoma are scary. There's just way too many uh, spiders, spiders and snakes. <laughs> I mean, it's just, no, I, 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 I have never gone spelunking in Oklahoma and I don't plan to. I, well, in fact, I've never been spelunking, but that's a whole other story of things I haven't done. Right. So uh, later, Rehoboam uh, actually capitalizes on the natural landscape and makes this one of the cities of defense. So this, this is a very strategic spot for David to be. And when David's family hears that this is where he, where he is, they, they go to join him. We're told that all of his father's house, so mm-hmm. his father, his mother, his brothers, their wives, their children, the servants, anyone attached to the household of Jesse is there. And we aren't told if this is like them actively supporting David as, you know, he he makes that journey towards the throne or if this is just fear motivated because Saul could very easily take retribution out on the family because, you know, if he can't get a hold of David, then he hurts the ones he can get a hold of. So verse two, and I, I, this, this verse kind of fascinates me. It says, and anyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there was with them about 400 men. So he, he's getting quite the following. I mean, this is almost the population. And by the time you took into account women and children, the, the population of the town we grew up in. Right. And so this is a lot of people on the it's run. Pretty sizable, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, most of us, when we attend church, I mean, on average around here, it's 150. Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. bigger than your normal small town Oklahoma church uh, for a little bit of perspective. But notice who he's drawing. He's drawing the outcast. Um, 
He is drawing in people who um, don't represent the status quo and the marginalized and the people they're, they're described. I, I looked at each description. So the first one is they're in distress. And so the word for distress appears six times in the Bible. So mm -hmm. not a whole lot. Four times it refers to people under siege, battle warlike conditions. Now, in biblical times, when we're talking about a siege condition, and even later, we're talking about being in a place where food and supplies are cut off. Mm -hmm. uh, cannibalism during times of siege were, were not uncommon. Uh, we're going to get to some, at least one of those stories later on uh, as we continue. Another time uh, is in Psalms 119, 119.143. But each time it is very much about being, um, being in a situation you can't escape from. Mm -hmm. there, there's no hope unless there's some kind of outside rescuer. And we need to remember that at this point in time, Saul has enslaved Israel. And they are completely subject to the whims of this man who, who knows what he's going to do one minute to the next. Mm -hmm. And so... The, the country, the, the people who were not important, the people that he felt were expendable, that Saul felt were expendable, they were very much in the situation of being under siege. Um, and we're also reminded, too, that Saul it operates in that place of Pharaoh and the idea of enslaving uh, the nation. It says the second type of person that was drawn to David were those who were in debt. Now that this word appears five times in the Bible, uh, we find it in first Kings eight thirty one, and there it's translated as in the ESV as simply made as in they were made to take an oath or forced to take an oath in Nehemiah five, seven it's in Nehemiah's warning to the nobles about um, those who have charged interest to the masses, those who were, so destitute that they had to take out loans. I, I think of those weekly payday cash advance places. Right. And, and Nehemiah saying, no, this isn't right. Uh, in Psalms 89.22, it's translated as to outwit. Thou shalt not outwit is, is how it's used. So it, it's this idea of taking advantage of a situation. Isaiah 24.2, God curses the whole land and he curses the creditor and the debtor which is distinct, which I thought was interesting, from the lender and the borrower. So the lender and the borrower is, is a, that's kind of a respectable situation. But the creditor and the debtor is, is these are underhanded loan sharks. They, they aren't good people. And the, the word itself, the primary meaning is to deceive or beguile. So you get the flavor of someone who's really taking advantage yeah. of someone else. And this is, this is what Saul's doing to the land. He, he's been taking advantage of people. And he's done this through enslaving. He's done this through taking whoever he wants. This is, we're seeing that this, this is starting to sum up the whole situation of the culture and the country, the political um, atmosphere and environment of the time. Right. Now, the final one is bitter in soul. And now I'm not going to go through all the times it shows up because it shows up 41 times, that, that mar. Um, but this bitter of spirit or bitter of soul um, should remind us of two women in particular. And um, Naomi. Naomi, exactly. And um, Benjamin's mother. 
No, but you're okay. you know, uh, the uh, should remind you of Hannah. Okay, and well, that was my. I was thinking about that, <laughs> but then I, I, you second guess. I yourself. second guess myself. That was actually the. I thought of that one right after Naomi. I was like, no, Hannah doesn't. I mean, because I think because I think of the end of her story, mm-hmm. right? You know. Right. Well, when she goes to the temple and she's praying, she tells Eli that she's there because she's bitter of soul. And we're reminded of this very subtle way of how women shape David's story. Because these two women, David's answer to their prayers. uh, And these are two of the most marginalized citizens of the country, uh, a widow without any sons. She, She is so dependent on the kindness of the community to survive. Uh, it, this is not a situation that any woman wants to be in. Hannah was on the fast track to joining Naomi in a very similar situation by not having a son. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that these two women, it's their prayers that not only pave the way for David to become king, they shape the future of the nation and in turn actually shape the future of the world that we currently inhabit. And so for these two women who are seen as so powerless to to have that kind of impact, I mean, that's huge. And I, I think we should be encouraged by that. And it's, it's fitting that David draws people who resemble these women. David is appealing to the marginalized. And can, when you contrast that with Saul, I mean, when you go back to Saul's introduction and we find out he's from a wealthy family, he, he, his father's a Gabor. I mean, he was very much a part of the upper echelons of the society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, David is, is drawing people that Saul never would have noticed or appreciated. And we also, we see a foreshadowing of the kind of crowds that Jesus is going to attract in his ministry mm-hmm. and people that were outcast and marginalized in his time. And just a quick side note, if you really want to study the marginalized being drawn to David, you, you need to study the Gospel of Luke, because that's who he focuses on. Right. Almost every one of the miracles, you're going to see how this is someone who does not fit into society. So in verses 3 and 4, David takes his mother and his father to Moab, and he asks the king of Moab to provide them a safe place while David figures out what God will do for me. I, I, I love that. David, you know, here, here he is on the run. He's got nothing going for him. And he says, I, I need a minute to catch my breath because God's got to do something for me in order for me to move forward. So mom and dad need to be taken care of, but I need to figure out what God is going to do for me, not what I'm going to do for myself, not can I figure a way out of this. I've got to stop reacting to the situation and I've got to let God really have control of the situation. Now, we mentioned this last week that taking care of his parents, this is an act of righteousness. And um, the fact that he doesn't forget them during the time when he is most at risk is a side of David that we really haven't seen before. I mean, other than taking on Goliath and fighting him, David hasn't done anything kind for anyone else. He, he's been receiving a lot of things from people. I mean, even his and Jonathan's uh, friendship seems rather one-sided. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when we look at the covenant speeches with Jonathan and David, Jonathan is the one who, who's taking the oath. Jonathan's the one speaking. It, it's not David. So we're seeing this, this compassion from David that um, 
it reveals a little bit more about him than than what we've seen, and I, and I like that because, uh, you know, so far the picture of him and Samuel hasn't been the most positive, and there's going to be some even darker <laughs> sides of David shown, but we're reminded too that David's grandmother she's a Moabite. Mm-hmm. Ruth Ruth was a Moabite, so there's a a good chance that Jesse had uncles or cousins living in this land. So to, for Jesse, it would be a, he probably wouldn't have had cousins. Well, we don't know. Did he have? Um, did Ruth have brothers and sisters? Oh, that, well, yeah, you're right. Because I'm thinking like I was thinking of the the Ruth's sisters-in-law that mm-hmm. turned back. They're like, they didn't have any more family ties. Right. Is it that, so, yeah, yeah, so we don't know we don't know what size family Ruth came from. And given the True. size of families at that point in time, it would I think it makes not sense. unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And and so for for Jesse to find safe haven there would not be unthinkable. It actually makes a little bit of sense, but it also it really draws out the fact that it was the bitter in spirit that um that uh connects us to Naomi in David's narrative. So this is when the prophet of Gad shows up and he appears with a very simple message. We aren't told a whole lot about him. He basically says, go home, get back where you belong. You know, you belong in Judah. That's where you need to be. Mm. And, um, and David does it. There's no debate. There's no uh, talking it through. It, it just, he, he does what he's told. And Gad's going to go on. We're going to find him later. He's going to serve in David's courts. And the thing about his appearance now, now David, king of Israel, future king of Israel, has a prophet who speaks to him. Right. Every king of Israel has to have a prophet that will speak to them. So he's, he's got an army of 400 men. Every mm-hmm. king needs an army. And we have a prophet. He, he's building his royal court. And in the most unlikely of places, it's on the run. So. Verse six, we have the sudden shift back to Saul. I mean, there's no warning. It says, now Saul heard that David um, was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand and all of his servants were standing around him. So the last time we we encountered a tamarisk tree was Genesis 23, 21, 33. And Abraham had just made a treaty with the king of the Philistines, Abimelech. And he had secured a well, and um, Abraham commemorates the treaty by planting a tamarisk tree. Now, this also reminds us that Saul has more ties with the Philistines than he does with Israel, because Mm -hmm. Saul has not been doing his duty as a king in defeating the the Philistines. And he's, you know, he's sitting holding that that ever-present spear, and you've got to wonder how much tension is in the air with the, the servants. I mean, who's he going to throw, throw the spear at this time? David's not there. Jonathan's not there. Yeah. Uh, you, you, nobody wants to be around Saul when he has, um, uh, around, has his spear in hand. And, and he's just heard David's building an army. And, you know, this isn't going to set well. And, and in verse 7 and 8, we know it doesn't set well because Saul begins to berate everyone around them. Everyone's conspiring against him. No one's telling him the truth. Uh, no one told him about Jonathan's covenant with David. And he claims that Jonathan's stirring David up for his own purposes. And he's just, he's going off on a rant is what he's doing. And you can just, 
if you think about it and you think about all the previous episodes with Saul, whenever he's upset, you can almost feel the, the, the servants trying to make themselves smaller so they aren't such a great target. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think maybe one of their concerns is maybe I'm not as quick as David and Jonathan. Maybe I can't leap out of the way in time. And I, I, I can, I can see the court and I can see everyone standing around in my mind, just the fear that had to be all over them. So in verse nine and 10, I'm just going to read this. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nov, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, sorry, Ahitub. And then he inquired of the Lord for him and gave provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. Okay, so now we understand why earlier there was that misfit verse that we talked about where Doeg the Edomite shows up without any right. explanation. We, we understand why that had to be included. And Doeg's now an important player on the scene. And we needed to know that he was actually there to witness what was going on. Because this also tells us some other things about his speech. Notice what he's claiming here. He says Ahimelech inquired of the Lord with David. That's what he leads with. Ahimelech gives David provisions, and Ahimelech gave David the sword. Okay, so first off, in chapter 21, there's no mention at all that David inquired of the Lord or right. that Ahimelech did it for on David's behalf. And the fact that Doeg chose to lead with this is very telling because you have to remember in this book, and when I say this book, I'm going back to Judges too. The only time people are inquiring of the Lord is when they're formulating battle plans. And, you know, we go back to the Judges when the elders take the ark and they, they inquire of the Lord. Saul, before his battles, he inquires of the Lord. Right. So to say that David's inquiring of the Lord is basically the same as saying David's trying to come up with a battle plan to attack you. Mm-hmm. Doeg knows exactly what he's saying, but he's also saying exactly what Saul wants to hear. Saul's already made up his mind. This is what David's up to. And now he has it confirmed through, through Doeg. And notice that he says provisions. He doesn't say David took the showbread. Right. It, Saul doesn't care. If Saul cared about the proper worship and honoring of the Torah— that would have been huge. That would have been a giant point for Saul to be able to jump on. Saul doesn't do that. He actually, it's the provisions, the fact that David had this, um, the food in order to feed himself and his men, that's the issue. And it has much more of a military flavor to the word than the showbread. Yeah. So again, Doeg's playing into Saul's paranoia. And and then, of course, you know, the, the, the sword, I mean, right there, that's all you've got to say is David took a sword. Now he's armed and able to come after Saul. So in verses 11 through 15, Saul summons Ahimelech to him and all of Ahimelech's house, uh, his father's house. So just like with David, with his father's house went to him, when it says this, we're talking about all the men, uh, probably not the children, because we have another uh, verse later on that talks about that. But, you know, his brothers, the servants, anyone important, they're there in Saul's um, court. And we're specifically told that's all the priests of Nov. Mm-hmm. So Saul charges Ahimelech with Doeg's... Saul charges what? 
charges the priest, Ahimelech, with all of Doeg's uh, accusations. Uh, he, and Ahimelech, he defends himself. He, he says, David is a known faithful servant of Saul. And we're getting more of a picture that Ahimelech really did know who David was. David's Saul's son-in-law. He's Saul's bodyguard. He has an honored place in Saul's house. And, uh, and he says, who among your, uh, all your servants is as faithful as David? I mean, you know, so that kind of gives you some insight as to why uh, um, Ahimelech was willing to believe David. Exactly. I mean, he didn't know that that Saul and David had this huge falling out. And, and you'll notice that he's emphatic. He did not inquire of God. Such a thing would be a betrayal to the king, um, which leads to some really interesting parallels when we look over at Luke eleven fifty two. Notice what Jesus says. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So who is Saul to to deny anyone the right to inquire of the Lord? The Hmm. only reason why he would not want David to inquire of the Lord is because he has a suspicion God would say, hey, this is how you take him out. Because he's got an agenda. Well, yeah, and, and it's, it's the agenda, but it's also the fear that, that God is going to approve of David attacking Saul. And that's the last thing Saul wants. So when, when we see this, we're not only reminded of you know, what happens in Luke, but we're also talking, uh, taking into account Saul's Pharaoh. And mm-hmm. we're reminded of that moment back in, in Exodus when Moses says, hey, we want to go out and pray and offer sacrifices to the Lord. And what's Pharaoh say? No chance. No right. way. And it, it, it's not happening. So we're seeing Saul is on the wrong side of history on so many levels. Right. So in verse 16, Saul pronounces a death sentence on Ahimelech and all of his father's house. Now, this act in and of itself is a direct violation of Torah. Because in order for a man to be condemned, there had to be two witnesses. Mm-hmm. We only have one. Right. And we also see where everyone's, you know, to bear their own punishment. Yes. As opposed to, you know, you, you can't condemn a son for a father, for a father's crime. Saul has given up all pretense at this point. He doesn't care what the Torah says. He doesn't want to honor God in, in what he's doing. And the fact that he's willing to just blatantly disregard what he as a king should be upholding, once again, we're, we're, we're forced to accept the fact that Saul cannot be a good king. He, that, that, pa- that chance has passed him by. So in verse 17, uh, Saul orders his guards to carry out the decree to kill Ahimelech, but no one's going to obey him. No one makes a move. And it's possible that the, you know, these are Saul's servants. They've been with him whenever he's lost his mind and done stupid things, made stupid commands. And he's, it's very possible that they realize it's better if we don't listen to him when he's in that state. Right. We better wait. But it's also possible they still had enough respect for the priesthood and God's house that they were not going to to violate the Torah in the same way that Saul is. Either way, Saul's uh, grip on his even his nobles that surround him, it, it, it's slipping. And he he's losing status as a king all the time because he is just making these unreasonable commands. And so Saul comes up with a way around it. He basically tells Doeg, hey, you brought this to my attention. You're the one who made the accusation. You kill them. And he does. He kills 85 priests that day. Now, 
all of these priests are from the house of Eli. And so that's going to be important. But then that's not enough for Doeg. He actually goes to Nov. He kills every man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkeys, and sheep. Anything living in this town he can find, he, he kills them. And only one of the priests uh, is managed to, manages to get free. But it's interesting to note that the only person who's capable of actually fulfilling or willing to fulfill this command is an outsider. It's not someone from Israel. It, it takes an Edomite to, to be willing to do this. But, but then again, it, all, it makes Doeg's uh, presence at the temple earlier even more puzzling. And that's another reason why I think possibly he was just delivering something for Saul. Right. No. And he was a prisoner of war. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, if he had any allegiance to God, he wouldn't have done this. Right. So the, the, the story really contrasts with uh, chapter 15. And if you remember back in chapter 15, Saul has gone up against the Ammonites and he had captured King Agag mm -hmm. and he refused to carry out God's command. And God had told him, you need to destroy all of them. You need to destroy the livestock. Now, and, and Saul's like, no, I, you know, I, I, I had mercy and compassion and, and he, he's, makes all of these excuses, but now he has no problem ordering the wholesale slaughter of God's chosen priests and servants. And so Saul spared the enemy of God, and he's destroying those who serve God. And, you know, if you needed any more proof that Saul should not be king, I, I, I don't know what it would be. Right. So um, it, it's from this, uh, I actually posted this quote without realizing that we're coming up on it, but on the Raven Creek Facebook page. There's a quote from the Talmud, and it comes from this story and this teaching. And it says, those who are kind to the cruel will be cruel to the kind. Mm -hmm. and, and this idea of justice and the fact that you can't circumvent God's justice because when you do, horrible, awful things are going to come from you know, showing mercy to those who don't want it or mercy to those who don't deserve it. And I'm not talking like you know, when you go to God and you ask for repentance. I'm talking about people who make violations of the law. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a distinction between spiritual salvation and deliverance and, and being delivered from the consequences of your decision. Right. We, we are always, you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but there, we still get to bear the consequences a lot of times. Sure. Uh, so, um, but anyway, despite the fact that Saul is completely out of line, that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a prophecy that goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We are told that Eli's house is going to be wiped out. And at this point, the rabbis see the one surviving um, priest that does manage to escape as everyone. And they take the word everyone and they divide it. So there shall be one pretty much is what they're saying, that one person will escape and he will beg for bread. And so they... they take a little different take on the prophecy, not that anyone who will survive, but the, the one who does survive, this is going to be his fate. But Eli's house is completely wiped out except for this one. And, and so this one son, and this is in verse 20, is Abathar, and he escapes to David. Mm. So, you know, he's looking for someone to save him. He knows he can't stay in Nov. He can't go to Saul. He probably can't even go to the other priest because if he goes to any other Levitical city, he's going to put them in danger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, he 
David really is his own only option. And he tells about the slaughter that happened in Nov. And verse 21, this is an interesting verse. David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. So David doesn't blame anyone else. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even blame Doeg. He, he says, I have done this. Right. He, he accepts full responsibility. And I mean, can't, you can't even imagine Saul beginning to take responsibility for the things he actually does do. Right. The things he actively, because you go back to Agag and he's like, oh, well, the people, the people made me do it. You know, it's, it's this idea that he can find an excuse for all of his, his actions where David, was he wrong? Well, yeah, but he wasn't the one who actually did it. He wasn't the active participant. And this is where that line from the Psalm comes in you know, to turn from evil, but pursue what's, it was pursue peace. Right. And so David sees this as he turned from evil, but he didn't pursue peace. He knew what Doeg was going to do, and he still allowed it to happen. And he tells Abathar, he says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For those who seek my life, seek yours. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. So he doesn't, just lament the past. He doesn't get stuck there. And I think that's one of the temptations we have to fight is when something bad happens, we kind of get stuck there. Yeah. And, and David actually makes provision for the future and he makes provision for his own future, but he also makes provision for Abathar's uh, future. And so now we have this really striking contrast of David and Saul. Saul, who is the butcher of the, of the priest, and we have David, who is the protector of the priest. Mm-hmm. So we can see why David is the superior one to, to be God's king. But something else significant is happening here, because aside from an army and a prophet, what else does a king need? He needs a priest. And now David has a priest. Mm. So again, he's building that, that royal court. And, and Saul, in, in his temper and his rage, he he actually paves the way for David to progress in this path. Right. And we're going to see that over and over again. We've already seen it some. Every time Saul does something ridiculous trying to, to stop David from any forward progress, it always works in David's favor. And it, it gets to the point that it's almost comical. But the destruction of Nov also does something else. It paves the way to move the spiritual center of Israel to Jerusalem. Right. So, because David's not going to have the same spiritual center as as Saul, his predecessor, mm. and as a king building a sacred space, that's part of their duties, uh, and that's not just in Israel; that's all ancient cultures. Right. That a king should be one who 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 provides a place for the worship of the God that supports him in his kingship. Mm-hmm. So, this is what David's going to do. So, Abathar he 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 serves David throughout his entire lifetime. At David's death, Solomon will exile Abathar. He, he says it's an act of mercy because Abathar had been in the wilderness with his father. But this completely fill, fulfills the prophecy. Abathar's been removed from being able to even serve God and to eat the bread of the priest. But we should not think that David's being all heroic and accepting all the consequences. Um, he, 
his lie really is what set things in motion. I mean, if he had told the truth to Ahimelech, Ahimelech could have refused him. He could have gone and said, I need to get out of here to protect everyone else. And instead, David's lie really did leave the priest of Nob at the mercy of Saul. And, and he, that's what he's, why he's saying that this is his fault. Right. He, he understands that lie had consequences that were bigger than himself. And that's, we're going to repeat this several times because this is the lesson of David. David teaches us that it's not in the ability not to sin that, that we receive righteousness or mercy or grace or love. We, we enter into this relationship with God fully taking responsibility for how we failed, where we've messed up, the sins we've committed, and we, we, we don't try to pass them off as, oh, somebody made me do this, the devil made me do this, if I had better parents or if I had more money or if I looked better. It, it's saying, no, I did this. This is my problem. I made the mistake. I need forgiveness for what I have done. And, and to stop looking at other people as some kind of scapegoat. And that's what makes David worthy of the kingship. Right. And so I, I think so often, you know, it's easy to, to point at what David did and, and really, really castigate him for, for the fact that he, he screwed up so much. But one of the things that I think we need to remember is many of the things we think are wrong today, many of the things that, that we condemn David for, the only reason why we know they're wrong is because David did them first. And David's, God's response to David is what defines this as wrong, because David is very much a product of his culture. Right. So it, in that, David's story is redeeming because it helped reshape his society, and that goes forward into our society and has helped shape where we live and how we live today. So God is always about shaking up the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so when he brings David in, he, he's bringing in a man who can say, okay, I'm fine with changing this. Mm -hmm. I, I can accept the fact that even though this is the way it's been done forever, that kings get to you know call in any woman they want into their bedchamber or they get to kill off whoever they want. God's saying there's a new way. I will adjust. I will, will change the way I do mm -hmm. things, and, and I'll be fine with that. Saul, he never, he never gets that because he, he doesn't know how to submit himself to God. Well, because he decides he is going to be a king like all the other nations. You know, he, that's what he was called to do, and, well, he's doing the job really well. Yes, yes. And, and I think the, David's willingness to, to change really becomes the example we need to pull out of that. Um, I mean, I, I know in my own life, it's so easy to, to justify things I do. Well, everybody's doing it. Uh, we've all heard this excuse from our kids. We've all given it as teenagers. And it's amazing how easy, even as an adult, it is to just throw yeah. that out there. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate that. But, you know, the rabbis weren't content to, to leave all the blame with David. They actually bring up Jonathan and they said, you know, if Jonathan had just sent a few loaves of bread along with David, this whole thing could have been avoided. And so, <laughs> well, David didn't really think to provide for it either. You know, they right. It's, I don't know. I that that seems like a flimsy, flimsy <laughs> kind of excuse. 
Well, it, it is and it isn't because think of how many times if we had just stopped to make sure that someone we cared about had everything they needed, we could stop calamity. And, you, you know, this is, I think this is where we need to, to address a need as soon as we see it and, and not let it just play out. Um, and, oh, well, God will provide. Well, yeah, God did provide, but, but at what cost? So there, we're going to leave First Samuel again. Uh, because we're going to go over to Psalm 57. Because I'll try to get the numbers right this time. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll correct you if you're wrong. But this psalm is said to have been written when David was hiding from Saul in a cave. Now, there's two psalms that that um, talk about David hiding in a cave, but we also have two passages in Samuel that talk about David hiding in a cave. So there's much debate. Did Psalm 57, was it written when David was in the cave, or is it the other psalm? So my solution to this was, since this is the first account of David hiding in a cave, I went with the first psalm about Jesus about David hiding in a cave. <laughs> well, you know... It- <laughs> It works, I guess. Yeah. So I just want to put that caveat out there um, because that, that's how I chose it. So the superscription, and we discussed what, how those functioned uh, last week, um, was probably you know, like written later after the psalm was composed. And it leaves us with two ways to read the psalm. One, this is a record of David's actual response to, to running from Saul, or David's flight from Saul offers us an example of an appropriate way to respond or to think about situations where we're fleeing from evil. And I I don't think one precludes the other. I I think there is supposed to be a universal message alongside the specific message and the universal message being that when we are in trouble, this is how you handle it. And the specific um, message being, Hey, this is how David handled it when, uh, when he was in trouble. So Verse one opens up with a very familiar refrain. Several Psalms open with this, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. And so David begins this prayer with a double cry for mercy, for favor, for grace. And this, this doubling here, when you, when you have doubling in, in the Hebrew language like this, it's supposed to make it more emphatic. It's to draw you in and to really think about what's being said. It's, it's, there is some poetry to it, but the, it's poetry with purpose. And God is not the one endangering uh, David, obviously, at this point. It, it's Saul. So he's not asking that God be merciful and God quit, quit punishing him or God you know, give him some reprieve from some divine sanction. He's saying he needs God's mercy in the situation dealing with Saul. So this should not be misconstrued as a cry for forgiveness. So... He says, in the shadows of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destructions pass by. The, this is the, the verse that the, the rabbis had said can, really connects it back to this time of hiding in the cave. Um, the cave is a refuge. It's, it's created by God and perceived to be almost an extension of God himself. Mm. And that, you know, you know, a cave is something created by God and not something that men have created as a safe place. It, but it's being reimagined here. It, it's not imagined as, as cold stone. It, it's a place of nurturing, uh, a nest over which God broods and, and he brings new life. 
So we we're being asked to to look beyond the specific physical situation of David and and look at how God might be using this place spiritually and the life that's supposed to come out of this place. Right. So and you know again this is poetry and poetry doesn't always use concrete language. I mean we would use this imagery. So verse 2 I will cry out to the God most high to God who fulfills his purposes for me. So that that fulfills it's actually completes his purposes for me to bring to an end. Um you know David to pray this again we're right back where we were with Psalm 34. David had been at the king's table um and now he's scrambling to survive in the in these caves. And so this makes it a statement of incredible faith and I I think we only see how much faith it takes to say this if we can imagine David being in those caves on on the run from Saul with his life at, you know ready to end at any moment and he's saying Saul's not going to end his life God's going to bring an end to the to his purpose and what he's declared over David and I, I don't know I have this tendency when I think of David writing psalms I think of him already as the king of Israel mm. I have a hard time seeing him as the the kid on the run I mean this 20 something year old boy trying to get away from the most powerful man in the country so now there, there's there's a depth, there's a richness by putting it in this context, and um, he he's he's saying you know it's not all lost. So, verse three a, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who who tramples on me. So the the Targums recognize this as a de- declaration that God will send angels to fight on David's behalf, which kind of echoes that Psalm 34 that we talked about last week, you know, the angel of the Lord encamping. So, you know, divine armies are going to meet the divi- the human armies of Saul. Yeah. See, I like the way that the JPS says it, because it says, uh, he will reach down from heaven and deliver me. Ooh, that's nice. I, I like that one. I like that a little better. And and what's interesting though is so there's there's actually there's the Selah here uh-huh. and in the ESV there's a line after the Selah in that verse. It so will, um, I'm curious about do you have anything on that? Back in the commentary, they actually made a big deal out of it and I skipped over it. You're kidding me. <laughs> well, I <sighs> have to decide what I'm going to <laughs> killing me. Uh, there there is a debate on um <laughs> on whether or where that belongs. And that's the problem. We don't know which line it belongs yeah, in, to. In the, um, in the JPS, it's just not there. Like the line that's after the Selah, it's just not there at all. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, uh, which, which line are you? Um, in the ESV, it says, He will send from heaven to save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Then there's the Selah, and then there's God will send his steadfast love and his... and uh, his faithfulness. That's not in the JPS. It's not in the JPS. Hmm, that's interesting. So I wonder. And it's not in the next verse in the JPS either. I was because I was wondering maybe it was a verse division issue, but right. it's just not there. Which, which actually the verse division issues happen. Well, um, yeah, because but, that, that it is like the the superscript is actually it's in it's, right. It's counted as a verse in the JPS. So you've got like everything's off by one verse. So I, what I'm wondering is um, if they use the Septuagint to fill that in, 
because the Masoretic does. And there's not even a footnote in the ESV. <laughs> so right. we're going to have to get on those guys. I need more footnotes. Shouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, After the Selah, it says, uh, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth in the Masoretic text. So it's interesting that it's missing in in the JPS. I I wonder what the the purpose in that is. So it is in the Masoretic. It's not the Septuagint that they're filling in with. Weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, So translation issues, I know that they're scary for a lot of people. They shouldn't be. Um, the, the psalm is pretty much intact without that, but it's just, you wish you could talk to the translators and be like, why is it mm-hmm. this? Yeah, yeah. Because, because I'm certain that the translators of the ESV are aware of what's in the J, or at least aware that of what somewhat of what's in the JPS oh, yeah. in the way that different, different translations render these. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that the JPS translators are, I don't know how old this version is. I'm sure there's updates and revisions to it all the time oh oh constantly and and you know and the translators do have a tendency to well number one they tend to work in committees so you've got mm-hmm. a variety of opinions and a variety of um, denominational backgrounds typically uh there's some some bibles that are written for a specific denomination that don't have that grace but there's this idea that you know the, you talk about it and you have to defend your position and one of the things that they do is look at various translations. They also look at various manuscripts and what mm-hmm. they contain. So, um, you know, translation is not some kind of work that's done in a bubble. Right. And so, right. yeah. And sometimes um, you can actually talk to translators and, and if you have that option and, and they will discuss these things with you and, you know, it's not hidden. Um, I'm sure that the JPS translators had a reason. I just don't know what it is. So, but um, I did look at this um, line that God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now, these two attributes of God are often paired together in the Psalms, and, and they function as restoration and protection. That's how they're, per, how they're portrayed, that, they, that his—I um, totally lost my place—that his, his love and his faithfulness protect and restore, and this is why you can have faith in him. So verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So we spoke of the symbolism uh, of lions in the A&E culture, but the rabbis offer a, a different um, interpretation. And they say that Saul's uh, general, Abner and Amasa, that they are lions of the Torah, that they fail to honor their learning of the Torah when they fail to stop Saul. And so they're saying that's who David is referring to. Don't know if I completely go along with that, but it is an interesting thought. So the, the reference uh, to, of spe- to, uh, to speech uh, in particular in that verse seems to be a direct reference to Doeg uh, when, he's standing, you know, when he's standing before Saul and he's slandering Ahimelech. Doeg's speech resulted in the death of an entire city. And the power of words to change people's lives or to take people's lives is a really big issue within the rabbinic literature. And the idea of having control over what you say and how you say it and, and the fact that your words can actually create new realities is a big part of honoring the Torah because you don't let your words run wild. You need to be careful and thoughtful in your speech. So 
a few more of us could take lessons in that. And I'm sure I'm, you know, standing in the front of that line. Right. But me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's just so easy to get caught up in, uh, in gossip or, you know, not to shut someone down when you overhear some gossip. That's probably the thing I'm, I'm most guilty of is I'll overhear something. And instead of um, just ha- confronting someone or saying, Hey, you don't, that shouldn't be said, you know, just letting it go. And maybe that's where I need to, as it said in the last um, last Psalm, to not only turn away from evil, but also pursue uh, peace. But we're in this Psalm, so we'll back to verse 5. Uh, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. Now, the Targums, they read this as an appeal to God to, God to cause his angels to exercise their authority over the earth to defend David's en- to defend David from his enemies, and that God will be glorified in the earth. So, you know, when we start talking about divine counsel, worldview stuff, and, you know, I said, I think it was in one of the, one of the episodes we recorded today, that the, this scholarship in that area really has picked up. This is not new. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with it, I've heard a lot of critiques that this idea of angels warring and battling and God uh, reclaiming all the earth of, as his, uh, as found in De- Deuteronomy 32, a lot of people think this is a new idea. Right. That Michael Heiser somehow just woke up one day with this great idea and decided to write a book. Uh, no, he, he's drawing from these ancient writings where they see the supernatural interaction with the earth as just normal. This is the way God created it. This is the process that all of the earth will, will be going through, that it has to be reclaimed by God, and that there are angelic armies that are fighting the powers of evil. And... um. One of the Christian uh, writers I read, Beth Tanner, she, she said that this is a request for a theophany. Now, we've talked about theophanies before. Theophanies, when God appears in flesh um, in the Old Testament, they're almost always associated with his rule and with his authority be- being manifest in the earth. And we're, uh, they're also associated with divine warriors, as we see in Joshua 5, when the angel of the Lord, the commander of God's armies, shows up before Joshua, and we have that almost exact replication from Exodus where Moses is standing in front of the the burning bush and the, you know, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. And these theophanies really are at a time when God is changing the status quo. He's changing what, what people expect, not only from him, but what people should expect from his people. Right. And so... David is praying that that God will show up because it, it sounds like he's getting a glimmer that the kingdom he's going to rule is not going to be the same kingdom that Saul had. And so by the time we get to the writing of the Targums that, that uh, deal with this issue, um, it, it's kind of interesting that they still held on to this idea because now, I should tell you that tar- a Targum is basically an Aramaic uh, paraphrase or commentary on the Old Testament, so for those who are not familiar. But we've already reached the point in time where we're starting to see people begin to remove God from the, the earth. They, they have like levels that God had retreated, and there's, it's a whole complex system that, you know, when, when Eve ate the fruit, then God retreated one level from the earth. When the sons of God sinned with women, he retreated another level. I don't remember all of it, but this idea that God has become so distant and, and so far from humanity that now he can only deal with humanity through the presence of angels and through the mediation of angels. So 
the idea that calling God into this earth to, to actually um, move would have been very foreign to them, but the idea that God would send angels would be very much in keeping with the, um, with the mindset. But, you know, again, that direct interaction with God is something David's work holds. Uh, it's one of the hallmarks of his Psalms is that God does want to be involved with the individual and that God isn't so holy and isn't so far removed that he can only hope that the angels will, will show up on his behalf. And of course, you know, as we as Christians, we don't have a problem with this idea. You know, the idea that God can be intimate and close and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and incarnate, you know, that's part of our belief. Well, and this idea that there are varying levels, um, you know, I, I know there's some scriptures that seem to indicate that there might be. But varying levels of heaven, yeah. Varying levels of heaven. But whenever I see things that try to separate God by various degrees and levels, it really, it's like, yeah, you're kind of getting into some Kabbalistic <laughs> stuff there. Uh, yeah, well, the, and the Kabbalists really picked up on it, and they, they, they built massive theologies around it and ideas, and um, fascinating, uh, scary, um, not something to be played with, in my opinion. Uh, but I, I, th- my point is, I don't think the two readings, the Christian and the, the Targums, I, I don't think the two re- readings have to preclude each other. I, I think they can definitely work hand in glove. Uh, we do know that God uses angels to do his bidding and to, to speak with humanity at times. Uh, I think there's times that we, angels show up today, um, but uh, most of the time it's, we're unaware. Sure. And, um, but the idea that God can be with us is, like I said, that's the hallmark of David's Psalms, and that's the promise of David's Psalms to, to future generation. So in verse 6, we're told that um, about the acts of David's enemies, and he explains that the, the dangers that they pose to him, you know, he, he, he deals with the facts of the situation. As I said, David is a realist when it comes to his faith. Uh, he doesn't deny that it's impacted him. I mean, my soul is bowed down. Uh, he, he, so often in Christian circles, we, we were kind of given this idea that if you're a good Christian, then you're going to just act like everything's okay. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you just have to cover up that, that you have any kind of grief. David never does this, but he says they have fallen into pits that they've dug for him. That The enemy, we're back to that idea that we also saw in Psalm 34, the evil that the wicked ones committed comes back on them, that right. God doesn't even have to move because they've made their own trap. And this is exactly what we know Saul has done time and time again. And as we just got through, you know, David now has an army because of Saul's acts. David has a prophet because of Saul's acts. David has a priest because of Saul's acts. So the, this is what, um, what David is testifying of, that all of Saul's plots actually benefit him. So verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. David declares his faith even in the midst of all the trials he faces. So he's saying, yes, things are bad, but I can still hold on to God. And and this is the skill. This is the vital skill that David's mastered. He can accurately assess a circumstance. He can be very cold-blooded in the way that he assesses a circumstance and a situation. And we go back to when he was talking to Jonathan, your dad's going to kill me. There's but one step between me and death. And he can be honest about his emotional state. He, he doesn't close down how he feels because it's not proper, or you don't say that in polite society. He, he's very honest. But then he has this ability of 
taking those feelings and that cold assessment and bringing them together to come up with the right response. Mm -hmm. And if I ever master this, I can rule the world. I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that... But, af but after you take a nap first. After I take a nap, yes, always. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, it's, it's not blind faith. That's, that's the thing. It's not blind faith. It's not denial. And it's not baseless idealism. It's not feel-goodery that, that we try to peddle off as Christian, um, Christian faith. It, it, his faith isn't about how he feels, and it's not about what he doesn't feel. It's about the character of God. Everything goes back to that steadfast love and God's faithfulness. And God is not defined by human perception. He's not defined by how you feel about him how you feel about your circumstance. And that's what David keeps bringing himself back to. And this is why he can worship and praise God. So he, he says in verse eight, I will sing and make melody. Act, it, it, this is an act of will. He has made a conscious decision. And awake, I, I love this, awake my glory. Now there's, this word has several different meanings. It could be my honor, my soul, my whole being. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hebrew is kavod. Um, but the idea is that the glory of humanity is to be near God. And David is commanding this part of him that connects with God to wake up. Now's, the, now's not the time to be exhausted. Now's not the time to give up. You, even though it seems like everything's against him, he needs that part of him to, to stay active and to, to do what it's supposed to do. So awake my harp, awake, O oh harp and lyre. That's, by the way, Kenor, which we did a whole episode on the Kenor. I will awake the dawn. So, David, you say. Would you like to know my yeah. translation of that? We are going to party all night long. <laughs> yeah. Is what I get from that. And we're going to do it to the point that, yes, the, the dawn is going to hear us. We're still going to be heard at dawn. And it's a, yeah, David calls to his instruments. I mean, this is a poetic statement. Um, we're going to rock until the break of dawn <laughs> is basically what I see All of in a sudden, that. I'm like uh, bebop till the break of dawn with Dan Seals. But anyway, that's a whole other... <laughs> Yeah. The, 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 uh, Beth Tanner, she says, the one praying is now leading the chorus that rings through the heavens is how she phrases mm -hmm. it. I thought that was a really good... Um, a really good way to phrase this. David's not content to wait for the joy to return. I mean, we talk about there's uh, joy comes in the morning. He, he's not waiting for that. He's saying, I'm going to summon it to me. And <laughs> he, he is going to actively pursue this, just like he said in the last Psalm. So there's that consistency in David. So verse nine, David promises to give thanks among the people. Uh, the, the word there is sometimes translated the folks. Uh, <laughs> so the, these are people who are intimate with him. Um, these are people that he knows and people who, uh, who share his value, part of his community. But then he promises to sing praises among the nations. So even those who don't know, even who aren't part of his immediate circle, are going to hear him sing. Mm -hmm. So verse 10, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And this is why he can sing. He's telling us it's because this is who God is. Once again, that character, the essence of God, that restoring, protective side of God, it, this is where David's hope is found. So verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So 
again, reading with that divine counsel worldview in line, David is praying for reversal of Babel. He's praying for God to reclaim the earth as his, not just Israel, the entire earth. David's vision is bigger than just him sitting on the throne. He sees God's ultimate design, and that's what he wants to happen. Yes, he might be getting the throne. He might be be raised to the position of a king. That's the first step in a larger campaign, and David sees himself as part of it. And um, Sephorno, um, this is a, one of the medieval um, Jewish rabbis, he, he said, may it become apparent when you throw, overthrow all the monarchs of the earth that you are supreme ruler. Hmm. So I, that's the way he translates it. It's a little fast and loose with the Hebrew, but the, I think the sentiment is there. And if this is what the medieval rabbis are seeing in this text, this tells you that this divine council worldview is has been a part of the fabric of Judaism since the dawn of time. And I, I love that. So, um, Or since the dawn of Judaism. Since the dawn of Judaism. And so... <laughs> We, we need to remember through all of this, David's still on the run, and, and he, he has not found a place to rest. He still has no manifest reason to think that God is going to move on his behalf or that God is going to, to make this happen anytime soon. Everything around him is telling him the exact opposite, but he's hanging on, like I said, to the truth of who God is. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's all he can cling to at this point in time. And, you know, I think so often as Christians, we like to try to break it down into these ABC steps or one, two, three, you know, this is how simple it is. And you just pray this prayer and do, that's not where it is. We, we got to hang on to the character of God. And most of us don't know what the character of God is. Right. Most of us have heard God so maligned by those who say, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is this angry, horrible God who just wants to kill everyone. Then Jesus came along and he's puppies and butterflies and rainbows. Right. And so there's a reason why God's character is under attack. And it's so we don't know who we are. If we don't know who our creator is, how in the world can we define the creation? Right. So this is, this is what David teaches us. Be real about how you feel. Hold on to the character of God. Be okay with with the facts of your situation. Don't hide from them. Right. And so, I, I think so often um, we just get out of balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and David te- kind of teaches us how to to be in balance and, and you know not to fall into those traps that so many of us as Christians do. And oh, how are you today? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And you just like no, you're not. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, I could go on another hour on that one, but we'll, oh, I'm, I'm sure we'll stop there. So. So. We'll spare everyone. <laughs> um, but thanks for being part of this, everybody out there. Uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, continue to send us messages and whatnot. Raven Creek SC on the social media, ravencreeksc.com is where you can find our website. And uh, if you haven't already, just take a minute. We do ask that you. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps people find us. If you like what you've heard and you think it would benefit other people, feel free to share. Please. It's your Facebook page or Twitter or whatever it is you're using. So we appreciate it either way, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If 
If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.